Welcome to the Sustainable Nano Podcast. I'm your host, Miriam Krauss. On today's episode, we have an interview with Dr. Majel Baker, a counseling psychologist who researches the effects of sexism on women college students. There's been increasing attention to the problems caused by sexism and sexual harassment in science in recent years, and Dr. Baker specifically focused her doctoral dissertation on understanding the day-to-day sexism experienced by women in STEM majors, that's science, technology, engineering, and math, and how it impacts their academic careers. So if our conversation with Dr. Baker makes you want to know more, as I suspect it will, I hope you'll check out our show notes where we have lots of great links as usual. But before we get to that, our timely mini interview for this episode is about the Nobel Prize in Chemistry, which was awarded last month for the development of lithium ion batteries. I asked University of Wisconsin-Madison graduate student and podcast regular Liz Ladadio to tell us a little bit about what this year's Nobel has to do with sustainable nanotechnology. So thank you for joining me. I appreciate it. Uh, do you want to introduce yourself very briefly? Sure. Um, my name is Liz Ladadio. I am a fifth year graduate student at the University of Wisconsin-Madison and Bob Hamer's group. And I study the cathode materials of lithium ion batteries. Yeah, so that's exactly why I asked you to be with us on this episode of the podcast. Um, The Nobel Prizes were awarded last month, and one of them, the Chemistry Prize, was actually kind of relevant to the work of the Center for Sustainable Nanotechnology. So can you explain that a little bit? Yes, absolutely. So the 2019 Nobel Prize in Chemistry went to three researchers, Akira Yoshino, M. Stanley Whittingham, and John B. Goodenough for the development of lithium-ion batteries. And so um, lithium ion batteries are a huge part of all of our lives. Essentially, any of your electronics that you can plug in and recharge all have lithium ion batteries in them. And so this work is obviously revolutionary and therefore was very deserving of the Nobel Prize. Perfect. And what does it have to do with sustainable nanotechnology? So the invention of lithium ion batteries in itself is a move towards more sustainable energy. So essentially, the opportunity to have lightweight and portable and rechargeable devices is one way that we could potentially eventually start to move our dependence away from things like fossil fuels. Lithium ion batteries, in addition to being things that can charge your devices, are also um, energy storage devices. And so if research is able to figure out how to store energy in lithium ion batteries using renewable energy sources like solar or wind power, then this would be really huge for being able to move our dependence away from carbon emitting energy sources. One other side of that coin is that currently lithium ion batteries do produce a lot of waste. And so that's been a huge research thrust in the Center for Sustainable Nanotechnology. One of the things we've been interested in since the beginning has been what happens to these materials if they end up in landfills. And they do end up in landfills. It's actually been shown that less than 5% of lithium-ion batteries are actually recycled properly. And there are a lot of reasons behind why that happens. I'm sure that a lot of you have old iPhones sitting in a drawer somewhere. You're not really sure exactly what you're supposed to do with those lithium ion batteries. And that's one of the big reasons that they aren't being recycled is there is no real infrastructure for that recycling. There's no communication about how to go about doing that. And additionally, one of the reasons for that is that it's really not cost effective 
to recycle those materials. It costs more to try to recover the metals from those spent lithium ion batteries than to just make new ones. And so those are just a couple of the reasons that these materials aren't really being properly recycled or at least disposed of in a way that doesn't lead to the materials getting into the environment. So we in the Center for Sustainable Nanotechnology for the past several years have been studying what happens if these materials get into aqueous systems, interact with biological organisms or other environmentally relevant molecular systems. Thank you. Do you have any suggestions for people if they have ancient phones and other batteries at home? Um, are there sometimes places that they can recycle? How could they find out what, what they can do with them? That is a great question. Um, I think that there are more resources um, starting to pop up. I think that a lot of electronics stores often will have recycling programs. So if you contact local electronics stores in your area, if you happen to live near a university. I think there are often kind of pickup or recycling options near universities as well. Um, those are just two I can think of off the top of my head. Google is always your friend in these cases as well. <laughs> yeah, cool. Thank you. That's super helpful. And I appreciate uh, that little snapshot of, of how center work is relevant to this year's Nobel Prize. So hopefully we'll get to talk to you again soon for more about what your own work is, is doing lately. So. All right. Sounds great. Thanks, Miriam. Thanks, Liz. So for anyone interested in more about battery materials and sustainable nanotechnology, you can check out our blog at sustainable-nano.com, where we have a couple of posts about lithium-ion batteries and also a couple of posts about Thanksgiving, which is celebrated this week in the United States. I'll put links to those in the show notes as well. But now it's time to get back to our interview with Majel Baker. The interviewer for this episode is Natalie Hudson-Smith, who's a chemistry graduate student at the University of Minnesota and another frequent contributor to Sustainable Nano. So without further ado, here is Natalie's interview with Dr. Majel Baker, although she was not yet Dr. Majel Baker at the time. Today I'm interviewing Majel Baker. Are you Dr. Majel Baker yet? Technically not. Very but, close? But very close. Okay. I have one more year. Okay. Can you tell me what your research is about? Yeah. So I'm a PhD student in counseling psychology over in the Department of Psychology. And most people aren't really familiar with counseling psychology, so just to give it a kind of a brief overview. That area of psychology is really interested in college student groups, um, groups that have historically been marginalized or disenfranchised. It's very interested in typical developmental processes, but also mental health. And so when people think of psychology, they think of clinical psychology, which is very much focused on folks who are feeling depressed, anxious, etc. Counseling psychology is focused on the broader swath of individuals. And so I give that context because as I describe my research, some people are kind of like, how, how does this fit into psychology? So that's kind of the context is as a counseling psychologist, I'm very much, in, very much interested in college students and very much interested in kind of typical development and the processes that get people to the careers that they end up choosing. I hope that makes sense. It does. Yeah. Okay. So I'll tell you a little bit about my dissertation. So kind of the first project that I did when I started in graduate school was this longitudinal study about women who experienced some type of sexual victimization in their past, whether that was in college or prior to coming to college. And the evidence from that longitudinal study, we tracked first years and sophomores over four years. We saw that women who had experienced some type of sexual victimization got poor GPAs and were more likely to leave college. 
So this is a really big deal because we also know that colleges are a place where women are likely to be exposed to these types of things. Right. We see a lot of news articles more and more in mm -hmm. Missoula. Missoula. Uh, yep. Something around one in five to one in four women will experience some type of sexual assault or sexual victimization in college. So we need to be asking this question about what is the impact beyond the psychological, because that's very much documented, and we need a lot of advocacy and work around the psychological impact of these awful events, but also college women are in college to succeed, to get a major, to do well, to have doors open in their career. So the fact that we found a link between these experiences of sexual victimization and their academic performance and actual like retention, staying in college, the fact that we saw that negative link there really had our eyebrows raised and us concerned. So that project, we saw that, and so then the extension of that was, why don't we try to look at then the majors where women are most disproportionately represented, and that leads us into STEM. STEM, right? And as a woman in STEM, I would imagine that you're really well aware of this. Yes. So we turned our attention to that specifically because if the evidence was finding this in a general college student population, okay, then what is the evidence going to tell us about women who, are, who already have the odds stacked up against them, right? And this is really important because, as you probably know, you know, STEM jobs are some of the best paid, they're the fastest growing, and if we're serious about closing the wage gap between women and men in this country, one of the things that we have to do is make sure that women have access to some of the best paying and highest, you know, highest paying, fastest growing careers, a lot of which, like I said, are in STEM. Mm -hmm. So if we want to close this wage gap, we got to make sure that women aren't experiencing barriers. So the National Science Foundation, I was very fortunate, they funded this work. Um, I received the NSF fellowship program, which is a three-year fellowship to fund this work. And so all of that, fast forward, fast forward, fast forward, that's the groundwork. I want to like <laughs> give you that groundwork so there's some background there. All that leads us into the actual dissertation that I did. Specifically then, what we tried to answer was, number one, what are women in STEM saying they're experiencing with regards to this larger topic around sexism and sexual victimization and sexual assault? What are they saying that they're experiencing? Because that needs to be documented. And two, what effects do these things have on their persistence and their performance in their STEM majors? I have a question about documentation, because it just made me think, you say about documentation, mm -hmm. but it seems like most documentation is often the most serious. Yes. Like you wouldn't document it until it gets to a point of reporting. So there's a big gap that we have nothing on? Mm-hmm. Okay. I think that you're 100% right. You're hitting it on the nose. As society has progressed and women have gotten more and more opportunities, right, which is great, the things that are blatantly, what is the word I'm looking for? You said it the best. The most egregious examples are the ones that we can really point out and almost everyone will universally say is bad. You know, women shouldn't be sexually assaulted on campus. They shouldn't be told, I can't have you join my lab because you're a woman. These types of things are clearly egregious and they, of course, still happen. And just like you said, we need to be documenting the full range of women's experiences because you talk to any woman in STEM and they will tell you that there's more there than just... A professor saying like you can't join my class uh, because you're a woman in fact very few have had that egregious of an experience I don't know if that aligns with your experience. I think it does right yeah. like 
you also hear more about like whisper networks carry mm. that really less egregious stuff. And mm-hmm. some of the very egregious stuff is also carried in them, but they carry information that is otherwise not documented. Yes. And so I think that when it comes to documenting just the range, that's kind of the piece of the dissertation, right? So the dissertation, I recruited women who were interested in STEM fields here at the University of Minnesota, first years and second years, right, which is kind of that space where students are making decisions about their majors. You know, they have some interest in STEM already, obviously, right, so they're Mm -hmm. interested in some type of STEM field. Generally, the data show longitudinal data from the past. Those people who decide to actually leave STEM at some point, most of them have left in their first or second year. So these are kind of decision points for us. There is gradual leakiness of the pipeline, right? We've, always, we've all heard about the leaky pipeline. Yes. The, the pipeline continues to leak as we go up. And we know that the first and second year is a place where people who do end up leaving, a lot of them left during those two years. So recruiting women in first and second year. And what I gave them was an app on their phones. Every day, I asked them to record any sexist experiences that they had in their STEM environments. Now, I didn't use that word sexism. People have different opinions about what something sexist is or is not. And as a psychologist, we have a lot of training in trying to ask people very behaviorally oriented questions that they can say yes or no to. So if you look at the content of the things I ask people about, you get the whole range. You get asking someone if today they experience some type of unwanted contact of a sexual nature or unwanted sexual contact. You get that range, right? Which is, that's sexual assault by definition, right? right? And then you get all the way down to the range of you were in a group of people of another gender than you and your comments were being ignored, right? That's a big range of what people could be saying that they're experiencing. And so all of the stuff that we captured then is ranging from the sexual assault to sexual objectification, which is when you're in that lab group and the person across from you just seems to not be looking at your eyes. Right. In there, yep. Which is, you know, it's disappointing to hear. Yeah. And you get exclusionary treatment. So okay. that's that's when folks are deciding what study groups they have. And, like, as a woman, you just somehow didn't get invited. Um, I have a question. Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Do you call any of these microaggressions or do you just sort them based on their... Because we hear the word microaggressions mm-hmm. a lot in training. And mm-hmm. a lot of these do fall under mm-hmm. what would be called that, but... It sounds like you have very like good labels for mm-hmm. exactly what they are. And they are microaggressions. Right. And it's a perfectly good word. Some of the things that we talk about are microaggressions. Some of the things like we talk about, though, are like they meet the student conduct code of sexual mm-hmm. misconduct. So that technically isn't a microaggression. Right. Because microaggressions... Definitely more macro. <laughs> yes, that's uh, yeah. more, exactly more macro. Right. So you're hitting the whole spread. You're trying, but some of those yes. would fall under microaggression terminology. Exactly. And the reason why we're trying to get the whole spread is because we had this previous project that showed the really egregious stuff, predicts GPA and leaving college. And then we have mountains of data about what are the types of things that discourage women from continuing. And the evidence is very clear that women are outperforming men in high school math and science. We had a presentation on that when I was in high school. And it was chalked up to dress code violations, distracting voice. Ah, okay. They showed us uh, like a gender split GPA average on a PowerPoint in an assembly. And we're like, y'all in your tank tops are Mm -hmm. messing it up. You you know, it is somehow always women's fault. Somehow. Somehow it always is. 
either we're doing poorly and it's our own dang fault that we're doing so bad, or when we start succeeding, well, we must be hurting the other guys. That's, I'm really glad that you shared that. I love hearing these little stories because I kind of put them away in my brain for the next time that someone really has a doubt about what I'm talking about. I can just bring up the stuff Good. that I hear. Um, you know, this piece about women having pretty much either met men or eclipsed them in terms of our academic performance, there's something to be said, admittedly so, about us leaving boys behind. So although the science and math gap has closed between the two genders, the reading and writing gap has not. So boys generally still underperform women with English classes, writing classes, those types of things. So we are to some degree also leaving boys behind. We also know that women are enrolling at colleges across the United States at about 57 to 60% of the enrollment, the entire student mm -hmm. body that's enrolled. So these things look positive on their head, which is why I bring them up. They start to become more insidious when you start unpacking them, right? Because you go five years out from graduation and the pay gap is there. So how is it that women are getting more college degrees, doing better at math and science than boys? And come the end of the road, which is jobs, which is what we're all preparing for, where is the equity? Where's the parity? It's not there. So all of that is to say we have to acknowledge that it's not ability and it's not innate talent that is keeping women out of STEM. That's ridiculous. Anybody who says otherwise, it's just... Uh. So since we know that it's not ability and achievement that's keeping women out of STEM because they're reaching parity with boys and men, we have to turn our attention to the sociocultural factors the stuff like microaggressions that you're right. mentioning, the sexism, the sexual victimization on campus, stereotypes. There's a lot of words for all these sociocultural factors that people are experiencing every day. I put them under the umbrella of sexism only to try to help us have some way of categorizing all of these things. Sure. But we could call it pretty much anything. Okay, so you're capturing all those in your study. Mm-hmm, yeah. Okay. And in this study, women were recording these experiences every day and writing examples of what they were seeing. And I'll try to give you some examples that aren't too revealing about who these women are. Sure. But, you know, some of the things that it would be is some of them are really egregious. There is the woman who is saying, uh, in my lab group, I'm trying to explain, uh, you know, discussion group, I'm trying to explain the answer to the problem that we've been given to discuss. And my lab mate, who's male, continues just to look down my shirt. I must have, I must have leaned over too far. I hear a lot of stuff getting attached to women's hypothesizing of why it yeah. happened. Yeah. I hear, I shouldn't say I hear, I read. It's just what I should say because they're writing it in, right, on this, on the app, on their phone. You know, I read women talking about how the very common one, right, which is I gave the answer to the problem five minutes ago. One of my male students who's in my class repeats it, and he's the one who gets the acknowledgement. How, how, yeah. I see you nodding, Such, right? Right, yeah. This is, a, this is an audio medium, so no one else can see you nodding. Yeah, but yeah. It's like such a common experience. Like, I feel like we all call it a, I just said that moment, right? Yeah. Um, I even had one this summer in, like, yeah, like a group of engineers, and I did something that's a little sneaky, but I, I like chose a guy that seemed nice, and I was like, hey, they're not listening to me. You just tell them. Yep. And he was like, Natalie's got an idea, everyone. And I was like, that's my workaround because I don't have like time to fix this entire situation. Mm -hmm. But it, it ends up like that. That's such a telling example. 
that's just the egregious kind of BS that we're talking about here, right? To just be frank about this whole situation. Right. And he was like, it's your idea. And I was like, yeah, I understand. But that's not the point. We have a time limit to get this done. So yeah. I do need you to get them to listen to this answer. And I want to hear, I want to get your perspective on this. Because what the dissertation showed us is that the women who were reporting that more of these things were happening to them, they felt less belonging in their major. I do want to talk about how you define belonging because yeah. I don't mm -hmm. think it's like easy to define. Yes. It's a really interesting question. Again, it comes back to the socio-cultural factors, right? Sure. So belonging is important because it's a very ambient sense that you should be in that room. You can ask people questions like, I think I fit in with my major. I think I'm like my peers. I enjoy being around my peers. The topic that I'm studying feels right for me. These are a lot of the ways that people make decisions about their majors and jobs. So I also do career counseling. Okay. As a counseling psychologist, I have a lot of experience doing that. And when I ask people about how are you making a decision about which major you'd like, this is what people are saying. People say things like, mm, I just don't think I'm that interested in that. Or mm, I was in that you know, XYZ class. I was in environmental sciences, and it just didn't feel like me. And that can be belonging. That's a piece of that. Not necessarily interest, but atmosphere. Yeah. yeah. Right? And how can we distinguish these things? There's the person who says, I love solving math problems. Every time I'm in physics discussion, I never get to solve anything. I just get talked over every time. I'm sick of it. I'm done. I never felt like I enjoyed that class. And so... And not to say specifically that that's the rationale that people go through, because it's not. People have a very complicated relationship with the decisions that they make about their careers. It's influenced by a lot of things. Parents' expectations, what they want for their jobs. For women, we're more likely to be making decisions about work-life balance as well, because for those of us who want to have children, we know what kind of barriers we might face in different fields for having kids. So we're making decisions about careers in a lot of complicated ways. This question about what does sexism do for that decision-making is only a piece of that, but it's an important piece because of documenting, number one, this is happening to women in their classes here at the University of Minnesota, regardless of if their peers did or did not mean anything by it. And so, step you know, on someone's foot and not mean it, but you, yes. you still stepped on their foot. Yes. I think it's a perfect metaphor, and to extend it, I would say if we're talking about people who get their foot stepped on a lot. So... It was maybe for that man the first time he stepped on a foot that day, but maybe for her it was like the fourth time that it got stepped on. And by now she's feeling pretty bruised and pretty tired, wants yeah. to sit down. <laughs> so, um, so in short then, to kind of say this piece about belonging, since we found this relationship, the data showed that people who even in the fall reported experiencing some of these things in their STEM classes, because specifically, and just to back up, we asked about these things happening in their STEM contexts. And we actually went a little farther than that too. We also did some follow-up analyses where we coded the descriptions of what they said happened, and we coded whether or not they were STEM-related, STEM-explicit, and that didn't change the results. So the results were that the more messages that women received of this kind and the more treatment that they received of this kind, this sexist treatment, microaggressions to all the way up to blatant, really bad stuff, the less that they felt like they belonged in that major come this springtime. So this has a long-term follow-up effect, and that seemed really important. So yeah. um, can you talk a little bit, what I found interesting reading this, mm -hmm. the identity of like the majority of perpetrators? Yes, 
you know, we asked women in their descriptions to say the context that this happened in, who, where, how, why, what was it? And not unexpectedly, the women were reporting that most of the perpetrators were their peers. Very few were their professors, which we should take as a possibly a good sign. Right. I was surprised by this, but maybe because I also think a lot about like the power differential of what a microaggression from a mm-hmm. professor versus a peer has. Mm-hmm. So maybe that's really colored my vision of like what I think is the most, like the biggest problem. Yes. But it is mostly the same age group. So people you would expect to be more like cool with stuff. Mm-hmm. But no. So the things from professors, if you talk to an individual, they might be able to recall the example from the professor as the most blatantly and obviously egregious one Okay. because of everything that you and I talked about when we first started this conversation. People are really good at identifying the really unambiguously bad stuff. A lot of social psychology research has shown that people are really great in non-ambiguous decision-making. It's when ambiguous things start happening that either memory starts to be fuzzy or people just, they're, they're just less able to describe what's going on. Something feels wrong, but there's yes. not really like a word for it. Yes. So it's hard to tell someone that it was weird or uncomfortable. You're hitting it right on the head there because that's part of the piece of why in psychology we use the, the phrase name it to tame it. We use a lot of jargon words. We like to throw out some jargon words like microaggression and sexism because that gives us power to start recognizing it when it happens. So we had a lot of women saying that it was primarily peers that they were Mm -hmm. seeing. And when you think about the context of the study, the study was specifically asking today, here's a long list of things. Did any of these things happen? Tell me about if they did. It was in a single day. What are students doing in their day? Primarily attending class. Who are they mostly around? Their other peers. Who are they seeing in the dorms? Peers, dining halls around campus. But that's important because that's documenting, again, where are these messages primarily coming from in terms of frequency? So with peers, primarily, and then in terms of the setting, I think this is really important too. Not unexpectedly, a lot of these things were being reported in the classroom. They happened in lab discussions. They happened during study groups. Just these class contexts, these school-dependent contexts. Women are doing homework with other peers and continually getting shut down. Um, Women are sitting around a study group and one guy starts to tell a joke that gets promulgated around all of them. So it's those types of things. I also saw that there was some study of peer connection and mm-hmm. what the role of that is and yes. what it does to belonging. Yes. And, and also really quickly too, I want to make a couple hedges real quick, not just because I'm a woman, but because I'm a scientist. <laughs> so the data suggests women make more hedges. So like the kind of the sort of the maybes. Okay. Anyways. So in describing these results, I want to point out a couple of pretty important limitations just real quick to kind of get to these. Sure. The first of which is that this study took a very binary view of gender, right? Yeah. So I also saw that you mm-hmm. selected by just anyone who self-identified as a woman. Mm-hmm. The reason for that being that stereotypes and treatment is identity specific. So the stereotypes and treatment that a trans-identified person who maybe is, I don't know, was female assigned at birth and is trans male, they will be experiencing... A transgender man. A trans, thank you, transgender yep. man. Thank you for correcting me. They will be experiencing a intersection of stereotypes that are gender, possibly race, topic, you know, whether they're in STEM or whether they're in something else that's more, that's supposed to be more fitting, quote unquote, for them. Individuals who have 
identities are receiving stereotypes and treatment based on those identities. So for the purposes of being able to write a dissertation that tried to answer a specific question about women's experiences, that was the direction that I took it in. I and we as psychologists mm -hmm. also need to be asking these exact same questions with different identities. So people of color, specifically looking at perhaps women of color in STEM. There's a lot of great people who do that area of research. Trans-identified folks, what are they specifically experiencing at the intersection of their gender identity, their STEM classes, race, all of those things. So I just want to point out that that's a really important limitation of this research. It has a very good place, which is that this is the kind of documentation like we talked about and the kind of findings that we can take to a department head that will hopefully speak to a lot of their students who are women who identify as women. So the other piece that's important is that this data is correlational because we cannot randomly assign people to be experiencing really, really awful things. But there's a lot of data that's experimental that uses the exact same stimuli that women said that they were seeing. So as part of the dissertation process, as a scientist, you review all of the cumulative evidence that's telling you that in the experimental literature, if women do see a man gazing at their chest or saying, can we actually have Jason do this task? I think that he's going to be better at it than Josephine. You know, those types of comments in experimental settings have the same effects on women. They show less interest. They sometimes show poor test results. They sometimes show less belonging or less intent for a STEM major. So the experimental evidence is there. What's important about this type of a study that although it's not experimental and cannot prove causation, we're studying it with people who are actually experiencing these things in their real environments. So experimental research has its place and correlational longitudinal research has its place. So I just want to make that quick, those two very important caveats about okay. the nature of the sample and the nature of the study design. So yes, it's important to think about. To your question about connectedness. Okay, now I'm circling back to that. Thank you for letting me take us on the tangent there. Connectedness is another one of these sociocultural factors, right? So since we've already <laughs> said it's not ability and it's not achievement, let's come back to the factors that are influencing their environment. The connectedness question is very specifically asking about those experiences in the classroom where women feel like they, as a class, have some type of cohesion, some type of connected climate. It is, again, this ambient, atmospheric, I like, I like to use the word atmosphere, it is these kind of feelings of a place. So the connectedness question that we also collected with this dissertation very specifically asked women in the middle of the fall semester, just identify a class for us that you're taking that's STEM. Just identify one course for us. Okay. Tell us about how you feel about in that classroom. Do you feel like your peers, you know, have positive interactions? Do you feel like when you ask a question, it's responded to? Do you think that you're similar to your peers? Do you talk to your peers outside of class? Connection. The data is pretty clear that a connection is important for a couple groups of people. Number one, <laughs> women, people of color, non-traditional students, first-generation students, all of these folks who feel like they generally don't have a place in the traditional student body. Groups where it, peer connection is not a default expectation. Yes. Okay. The place where it's not the default is that we're all alike and we all are connected here. 
connection is very important for groups who that isn't the case for. So like women in STEM. So connection is also good for all students. So that's another really important piece of why this is an important concept to investigate. Connection also has been demonstrated in the literature to be related to good stuff for all students, uh, whether that's how well they thought they learned from the class. I mean, this should hopefully just ring true to yours and anyone's experience in a class of haven't you ever been in that class before that perhaps is purely lecture, you don't know a single person in it, the professor talks the entire time, it seems like nobody talks to each other outside of the class halls or in breaks. How engaged do you feel in that class, right? right? This kind of leads to my question mm -hmm. because I was really struck by how important peer connection mm -hmm. was, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. which made mm -hmm. me think, is there anything instructors can design into a course to promote peer connection? Yes. I would love to hear these know, ideas. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you're right. Just you're right. Yes. yes. The answer is yes. A um, couple of things. And this is also from the learning literature. There's a mm -hmm. lot of literature about what, what teachers and instructors can do best to facilitate students' learning. Um, you know, I love professors who lecture. That's fine. I really get it. I understand that they're attached to it. The data suggests that that's just not the best way to learn. The data also very clearly suggests that a single cumulative exam at the end, not that great for retention. If you put on a scale of like least amount of learning to most amount of learning, the stuff that's on the least amount of learning scale is lecture and big cumulative exam. You start crawling up that continuum with things like rote memorization, not that great. The stuff that you remember is stuff that you use repeatedly. So what we call that as in teaching, you just call that you know exposure like repeated exposure to a topic with your students. That's the stuff they learn, start learning better. The stuff they learn best is the stuff that they actually teach to others. You learn something best by teaching it. Like on a continuum, the data says that that's the best teaching strategy in terms of getting people to learn, make them teach something. I understand that's not always possible, but we can try if to If you have a class of 200 in an intro course, yeah. But you Logistical can, nightmares Right, happen. it is a logistical nightmare, but there are places for this. Why do we think we have lab sections in the first place? You never just tell someone how to pipette. You put them in a lab space and get them to pipette. Would you agree? I would agree. <laughs> you can't learn things to some degree without doing them, getting your hands dirty. So it would be better if we had just a lot more participatory type of activities in class. How this ties back to connection is that that also facilitates connection too. So active learning, which is where you have students engaging on something. They're not listening and taping notes. So give me something, an example of something that you'd like to teach. Let's see. I really care about color, chemistry of color, which lends itself to many active learning activities, right? Ooh, I love that. Yeah. Okay, so we're gonna take the chemistry of color. Okay. This is perfect. I think, and you obviously know you could stand up there and just explain to everybody. I could walk you through different pigments and their structures and chemical formulas and it would be very boring. Right? What if instead you gave students the parameter of what pigment you want it to show and you gave them the building blocks of the chemical formula and they tried to build a chemical formula themselves? Okay. They're going to get it wrong. Sure. Because that's just how this works when they get it wrong but then you teach them what's right or if they do discover the right formula along the way they're going to remember that 
And then if you have one group teach the other group the chemical formula that they discovered that is the correct for the right pigment, if they have to now teach the other group how they discovered that and the formula that works, they're going to learn it even better. And why does that facilitate connection? It's because you're talking to people, you're asking their ideas, you're working with them, you're trying to problem solve. A piece of this is a non-competitive, collaborative environment. Mm -hmm. So you've got to set that up, right? We've got to, as instructors, I'll speak for myself as an instructor as well, set up that perhaps it's not evaluatory, like the thing that you're going to get graded on is that you did it. You can't win this. You can't win. Right. Or if you can win, maybe the group wins, not an individual person. Because groups competing against each other can be kind of a fun thing in the classroom. Right. But individuals in a group trying to one-up each other is not going to be good. This type of stuff is going to build connection and it's going to help them remember better. Um, there's a lot of resistance to implementing this kind of thing. When I've mentioned these types of things to, say, folks who are really committed to core curriculum and STEM, what they opine that I think is probably accurate is there is so much to cover. There is. Right? People say, but there is so much to cover. If I didn't lecture it to them, I would not be getting through everything that they are, quote unquote, supposed to learn. So I don't have the solutions for folks, unfortunately. I wish I had a perfect answer for you of how to do this. Um, what I would challenge every instructor who feels that way is to ask, how much of what you lecture at them are they remembering for how long? And when they truly face up to that truth, which is that the students are remembering, what, 10% of it in next year, do you, did you really think that the 90% of your other time was valuably used? If they're going to walk away with 10% of it in the first place, why not make it an enjoyable 10% yeah. that they <laughs> I also think you could get more than 10% well, in an active go. classroom. There you um, go. But I, I think there is somewhat of an answer here. Cause yeah. To me, do what you you're saying any, yeah. is that you kind of get like a two for the price of one. Mm -hmm. You. Mm -hmm. Up your retention, you're doing active learning, you're mm -hmm. doing a, a new mm -hmm. pedagogical model, mm -hmm. but you're also influencing belonging, mm -hmm. so you're probably going to do a little bit better at retention. Mm -hmm. All other factors, other variables that you can't control as an instructor, notwithstanding. And this is always the, the tension for those of us who want to make change, is that these changes that we can implement, uh, the effects that they have are often small, but mm -hmm. we have to ask ourselves... If in every single class that's two more students that, that are more engaged than they were, across an entire university that's 40,000 students wide, that's a lot of people. So you got to start scaling up the effect size of some of these possible options. I didn't investigate any of these particular interventions in my studies, mm -hmm. but I'm drawing on the literature from what we do know. because. The question I was specifically trying to ask with our connectedness paper is, is what we know about the connectedness literature actually true for women in STEM? Because if it is, that seems pretty important. And the data, like you said, did suggest that people who felt more connection in just a single classroom felt more belonging in their whole major. That seems really important, that the feeling that they can have about a single classroom can be related. Again, like I said, over the course of two semesters, from fall to spring, these questions that I ask them are four months apart. That's how long this study ran for. They felt more belonging in their major, if even in their fall class, in their fall semester, they had one class that they felt connected in. So I think that that means it's important 
I think that this kind of comes together nicely. What you found out that was maybe surprising to me yeah. is that like professors are the least of perpetrators mm -hmm. when you fractioned them all out. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. But they also have a lot of power to influence peer connection mm -hmm. and belonging. Mm -hmm. So Possibly. Mm -hmm. Right? There's something there if mm -hmm. you choose to use that power differential really yeah. wisely. I think, fortunately, the dissertation also showed that women who felt supported every day felt more belonging in their major. So the last thing I'll add on to that, though, is that it wasn't the case that if the women got support on the same day that some one of these sexist either microaggressions, you can call it sexist events, happened. That didn't necessarily make it all better again. They were two independent effects. If you okay. had sexist things happening, you felt less belonging. If you had support happening, you felt more belonging. They didn't interact with each other. Mm -hmm. What that tells us is that both are important to, okay. to change. One, support. We have awesome stuff on campus for that. Sure. I was going to ask, yes. like, did they self-report like sources of support? Unfortunately, I didn't ask about that every okay. day. So I have general information about how they felt supported in general, but every single day with the constraints of the fact that you're asking someone questions every single day, there's only so much that you can ask them to keep their attention sure. at home. We didn't ask them every day who it was that was supporting them or how it happened. That's another piece for follow-up. Because there's mm -hmm. vertical support, mm -hmm. like someone in a mentor position mm -hmm. or a professor, but also I imagine that like a horizontal support of like a study group of women is very powerful. Yes. And then there are even, small shout out to like the STEM squad, which is like an online community of women and non-binary folks in STEM, oh. which also is like a similar thing and meant to function as that peer connection, even yeah. if it's not on like a physical campus level. Yeah. Oh, I love that. Yeah. And I say that, I say that we need to be increasing support that women have because the data is not my data, but it's just, just the stuff I'm pulling on. Like mm -hmm. I, when you write a dissertation, you try to know the whole field, right? Sure. You know, the evidence is really clear that peer supportedness from other women makes women do better. Okay. Done. In as hard as fields as engineering, period. So we need to be bolstering support. My dissertation showed that relationship there. Feeling more support, you feel more belonging. So we need to be bolstering support. We also need to be decreasing the incidences of this sexist stuff. So that is a question of how do we get people to change their minds about how they're treating others and their awareness of what they're saying to other people. It's a big question. Maybe one of the biggest in a lot of communities about what's going on right now in like STEM and mm -hmm. as a worldwide community. I wish that I had a psychological answer for you because unfortunately the data show us from intervention programs that it's really hard to move the needle on getting people to change because of how we do it. All you can do is bring someone into a workshop sometimes for two or three days in a row, right? And what did you and I just spend such a long time discussing of how do people learn best? By not being lectured to. By right. not yeah. being lectured to. By teaching it to others by encountering it again and again and again in their life. So as a counseling psychologist, we are expected to do a lot of work of looking at our own biases and how we treat other people. So that is five years in the making though. I can't ask that of every person, but there's gotta be some type of middle ground around getting folks who are saying some of these things to other women, both women and men are saying these things, unfortunately, whether it's, you know, the kind of comments like, Oh, but you're not actually going to get a job in electrical engineering, though, right? 
or going to a job interview and the other person being like, oh wait, you applied for this? That can come from women and men, right? Because we were all raised in this society. So we've internalized these messages, even if we're the person who is hurting, even if women like us are who is hurting. Go ahead. Sorry, I'm thinking of a joke. Oh I mean, yeah, what's there, that? There are two yeah. fish swimming along and they, they see... I guess a shark. It doesn't matter. And the shark says, oh, how's the water? And the fish say, what's water? Because if you're immersed in it, you can't see it. Yes. So it also goes back to, we talked a little bit about intention. Mm -hmm. So like, didn't mean to, and Mm -hmm. you couldn't tell that you did because you didn't have like a a word for any of it. Mm -hmm. And so I I try to tread carefully with making these clear Mm -hmm. recommendations of you know, this kind of stuff that you're saying, it's hurting people, or at least I think there's experimental evidence and then the correlational evidence from my study that's suggesting that there are some possible ill effects from talking to people the way you are or treating them the way that you are, right? But that that raises people's defenses, right? No one mm-hmm. wants to be told that they're doing something wrong. So all of us as a society are trying to answer this question because there are a lot of ways in which we're all treating each other really wrong. So how do we just like scale that down to this very specific example of men in STEM perpetrating again and again stereotypes that they hear, re-perpetrating them on women, women doubting other women? How do we just scale it down and just try to address that question? Well, I think that things like bias training are well-intentioned and we just need to be doing better jobs with them. Just because the evidence just now shows that some programs aren't effective, some are kind of effective, doesn't we should be doing more, mm-hmm. improve them, make them different, try different things. We have to be experiencing widespread culture change in both the people who are experiencing the sexist events and the people who are perpetrating them. We've got to get peers to see what they're doing and either stop or... I don't know, be heavy-handed about it. I don't have I don't know if I have an answer for that no, question. No, it's okay but... for you not to have an answer. So, do you have any other yeah. take-homes from your dissertation research? Mm. Any good sound bites? Mm, good sound bites. When a woman comes home and like tells her friends or tells her peers, again in lab today, they gave me all of the secretarial tasks. They asked me to do the planning. They asked me to take the notes. Once again, they did that. When a woman comes home and talks about that to other people, and other people say, so what? Big deal. You have good handwriting, don't you? The truth of the dissertation, what this data tell us, is that actually that stuff does matter. It isn't stuff that we should be saying to other people, like, does it really matter? Shrug it off. Who cares? They didn't mean it that way. The data suggests that the more and more that those things happen to people, the less that they feel like they belong in those spaces. And if people feel like they don't belong in those spaces, they're not gonna pursue them. So the stuff that we get every single day, these small, subtle messages that tell us that we don't belong somewhere, they actually do matter. I think that's a great summary. Thank you. Yeah, thank you for having me. You I bet. really enjoyed your questions and talking with you about this. That's it for this episode of the Sustainable Nano Podcast. Thank you for listening. Thanks again to Dr. Majel Baker for talking with us for this interview and to Natalie Hudson-Smith for doing the interview. And also to Liz Ladadio for talking with me about lithium-ion batteries. Our music is by PC3 and Dexter Britton. This podcast is produced by the Center for Sustainable Nanotechnology, which is funded by the National Science Foundation. A usual disclaimer, the opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the speakers and not necessarily those of the National Science Foundation. 
Want more Sustainable Nano? You can subscribe to the podcast through Apple Podcast or Stitcher, or listen to any of our episodes and see show notes at podcast.sustainable-nano.com. We also have a blog with close to 300 posts now, most of which are written by students in the Center for Sustainable Nanotechnology, and you can find that at sustainable-nano.com. And you can reach out to us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at sustainablenano, all one word. We'd love to hear from you. So thanks again for listening to the Sustainable Nano Podcast, and especially for those in the United States celebrating Thanksgiving this week. Don't forget, it's always important to appreciate the small things in life. <laughs>